Chapter Twenty Seven of She by H. Ryder Haggard. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine. She by H. Ryder Haggard. Chapter Twenty Seven. We leap. We passed through the caves without trouble, but when we came to the slope of the inverted cone, two difficulties stared us in the face. The first of these was the laborious nature of the ascent, and the next the extreme difficulty of finding our way. Indeed, had it not been for the mental notes that I had fortunately taken of the shapes of various rocks, I am sure that we never should have managed it at all but have wandered about in the dreadful womb of the volcano, for I suppose it must once have been something of the sort, until we died of exhaustion and despair. As it was, we went wrong several times, and once nearly fell into a huge crack or crevice. It was terrible work, creeping about in the dense gloom and awful stillness from boulder to boulder, and examining it by the feeble light of the lamps, to see if I could recognize its shape. We rarely spoke, our hearts were too heavy for speech. We simply stumbled about, falling sometimes and cutting ourselves, in a rather dogged sort of way. The fact was that our spirits were utterly crushed, and we did not greatly care what happened to us. Only we felt bound to try and save our lives whilst we could, and indeed a natural instinct prompted us to it. So for some three or four hours, I should think, I cannot tell exactly how long, for we had no watch left that would go. We blundered on. During the last two hours we were completely lost, and I began to fear that we had gone into the funeral of some subsidiary cone, when at last I suddenly recognized a very large rock, which we had passed in descending but a little way from the top. It is a marvel that I should have recognized it, and indeed, we had already passed it going at right angles to the proper path when something about it struck me, and I turned back and examined it in an idle sort of way, and, as it happened, this proved our salvation. After this we gained the rocky natural stair without much further trouble, and in due course found ourselves back in the little chamber where the benighted nude had lived and died. But now a fresh terror stared us in the face. It will be remembered that owing to Job's fear and awkwardness, the plank upon which we had crossed from the huge spur to the rocking stone had been whirled off into the tremendous gulf below. How were we to cross without the plank? There was only one answer. We must try and jump it, or else stop there till we starved. The distance in itself was not so very great, between eleven and twelve feet, I should think, and I have seen Leo jump over twenty when he was a young fellow at college. But then, think of the conditions. Two weary, worn-out men, one of them on the wrong side of forty, a rocking stone to take off from, a trembling point of rock some few feet across to land upon, and a bottomless gulf to be cleared in a raging gale. It was bad enough, God knows, but when I pointed out these things to Leo, he put the whole matter in a nutshell by replying that, Merciless as the choice was, we must choose between the certainty of the lingering death in the chamber and the risk of a swift one in the air. 
Of course, there was no arguing against this, but one thing was clear. We could not attempt that leap in the dark. The only thing to do was to wait for the ray of light which pierced through the gulf at sunset. How near or how far from sunset we might be, neither of us had the faintest notion. All we did know was that when at last the light came it would not endure more than a couple of minutes at the outside, so that we must be prepared to meet it. Accordingly, we made up our minds to creep on to the top of the rocking stone and lie there in readiness. We were the more easily reconciled to this course by the fact that our lamps were once more nearly exhausted. Indeed, one had gone out bodily, and the other was jumping up and down as the flame of a lamp does when the oil is done. So, by the aid of its dying light, we hastened to crawl out of the little chamber and clamber up the side of the great stone. As we did so, the light went out. The difference in our position was a sufficiently remarkable one. Below, in the little chamber, we had only heard the roaring of the gale overhead. Here, lying on our faces on the swinging stone, we were exposed to its full force and fury, as the great draught drew first from this direction and then from that, hauling against the mighty precipice and through the rocky cliffs like ten thousand despairing souls. We lay there hour after hour in terror and misery of mind so deep that I will not attempt to describe it, and listen to the wild storm voices of that Tartarus, as, set to the deep undertone of the spur opposite against which the wind hummed like some awful harp, they called to each other from precipice to precipice. No nightmare dreamed by man, no wild invention of the romancer, can ever equal the living horror of that place, and the weird crying of those voices of the night, as we clung like shipwrecked mariners to a raft, and tossed on the black, unfathomed wilderness of air. Fortunately the temperature was not a low one. Indeed the wind was warm, or we should have perished. So we clung and listened, and while we were stretched out upon the rock a thing happened, which was so curious and suggestive in itself, though doubtless a mere coincidence, that, if anything, it added to, rather than deducted from, the burden on our nerves. It will be remembered that, when Aisha was standing on the spur, before we crossed to the stone, the wind tore her cloak from her, and whirled it away into the darkness of the gulf. We could not see whither. Well, I hardly like to tell the story, it is so strange. As we lay there upon the rocking stone, this very cloak came floating out of the black space, like a memory from the dead, and fell on Leo, so that it covered him nearly from head to foot. We could not at first make out what it was, but soon discovered by its feel, and then poor Leo, for the first time, gave away, and I heard him sobbing there upon the stone. No doubt the cloak had been caught upon some pinnacle of the cliff, and was thence blown hither by a chance gust, but still it was a most curious and touching incident. Shortly after this, suddenly, without the slightest previous warning, the great red knife of light came stabbing the darkness through and through, struck the swaying stone on which we were, and rested its sharp point upon the spur opposite. Now for it, said Leo, now or never. We rose and stretched ourselves, and looked at the cloud breath stained the color of blood, by the thread ray, as they 
tore through the sickening depths beneath, and then at the empty space between the swaying stone and the quivering rock, and in our hearts despaired and prepared for death. Surely we could not clear it, desperate though we were. "'Who is to go first? said I. "'Do you, old fellow,' answered Leo. "'I will sit upon the other side of the stone to steady it. "'You must take as much run as you can and jump high, "'and God have mercy on us,' say I. "'I acquiesced it with a nod, "'and then I did a thing I had never done since Leo was a little boy. "'I turned and put my arm round him and kissed him on the forehead. "'It sounds rather French, but as a fact I was taking my last farewell "'of a man whom I could not have loved more.' if he had been my own son twice over. "'Good-bye, my boy,' I said. "'I hope that we shall meet again, wherever it is that we go to.' The fact was I did not expect to live another two minutes. Next I retreated to the far side of the rock and waited till one of the chopping gusts of wind got behind me, and then I ran the length of the huge stone, some three or four and thirty feet, and sprang wildly out into the dizzy air. Oh, the sickening terrors that I felt as I launched myself at that little point of rock, and the horrible sense of despair that shot through my brain as I realized that I had jumped short. But so it was, my feet never touched the point, they went down into space, only my hands and body came into contact with it. I gripped at it with a yell, but one hand slipped, and I swung right round, holding by the other, so that I faced the stone from which I had sprung. Wildly I stretched up with my left hand, and this time managed to grasp a knob of rock, and there I hung in the fierce red light, with thousands of feet of empty air beneath me. My hands were holding to either side of the under part of the spur, so that its point was touching my head, Therefore, even if I could have found the strength, I could not pull myself up. The most that I could do would be to hang for about a minute, and then drop down, down into the bottomless pit. If any man can imagine a more hideous position, let him speak. All I know is that the torture of that half-minute nearly turned my brain. I heard Leo give a cry, and then suddenly saw him in mid-air springing up and out like a chemos. It was a splendid leap that he took under the influence of his terror and despair, clearing the horrible gulf as if it were nothing, and landing well on the rocky point. He threw himself upon his face to prevent his pitching off into the depth. I felt the spur above me shake beneath the shock of his impact and as it did so I saw the huge rocking stone that had been violently depressed by him as he sprang. Fly back when relieved of its weight till, for the first time during all these centuries, it got beyond its balance, fell with a most awful crash right into the rocky chamber, which had once served the philosopher Nut for a hermitage, and, I have no doubt, forever sealed the passage that leads to the place of life, with some hundreds of tons of rock. All this happened in a second, and curiously enough, notwithstanding my terrible position, I noted it involuntarily, as it were. I even remember thinking that no human being would go down that dread path again. Next instant I felt Leo seize me by the right wrist with both hands. By lying flat on the point of rock he could just reach me, 
"'You must let go and swing yourself clear,' he said in a calm and collected voice. "'And then I will try and pull you up, or we will both go together. Are you ready?' By way of answer I let go, first with my left hand and then with the right, and, as a consequence, swayed out clear of the overshadowing rock, my weight hanging upon Leo's arms. It was a dreadful moment. He was a very powerful man, I knew, but would his strength be equal to lifting me up till I could get a hold on the top of the spur, when owing to his position he had so little purchase? For a few seconds I swung to and fro, while he gathered himself for the effort, and then I heard his sinews cracking above me, and felt myself lifted up as though I were a little child, till I got my left arm round the rock, and my chest was resting on it. The rest was easy. In two or three more seconds I was up, and we were lying panting side by side, trembling like leaves, and with the cold perspiration of terror pouring from our skins. And then, as before, the light went out like a lamp. For some half-hour we lay thus without speaking a word, and then at length began to creep along the great spore, as best we might in the dense gloom. As we drew towards the face of the cliff, however, from which the spore sprang out like a spike from a wall, the light increased, though only a very little, for it was night overhead. After that the gusts of wind decreased, and we got along rather better, and at last reached the mouth of the first cave or tunnel. But now a fresh trouble stared us in the face. Our oil was gone, and the lamps were, no doubt, crushed to powder beneath the fallen rocking stone. We were even without a drop of water to stay our thirst, for we had drunk the last in the chamber of Nood. How were we to seek to make our way through this last boulder-strewn tunnel? Clearly all that we could do was to trust to our sense of feeling, and attempt the passage in the dark. So in we crept, fearing that if we delayed to do so, our exhaustion would overcome us, and we should probably lie down and die where we were. Oh, the horrors of that last tunnel! The place was strewn with rocks, and we fell over them, and knocked ourselves up against them till we were bleeding from a score of wounds. Our only guide was the side of the cavern, which we kept touching, and so bewildered did we grow in the darkness, that we were several times seized with the terrifying thought that we had turned and were travelling the wrong way. On we went, feebly and still more feebly, for hour after hour stopping every few minutes to rest, for our strength was spent. Once we fell asleep, and I think must have slept for some hours, for, when we woke, our limbs were quite stiff, and the blood from our blows and scratches had caked, and was hard and dry upon our skin. Then we dragged ourselves on again, till at last, when despair was entering into our hearts, we once more saw the light of day, and found ourselves outside the tunnel in the rocky fold, on the outer surface of the cliff that, it will be remembered, led into it. It was early morning that we could tell by the feel of the sweet air and the look of the blessed sky, which we had never hoped to see again. It was, so near as we knew, an hour after sunset when we entered the tunnel, so it followed that it had taken us the entire night to crawl through that dreadful place. "'One more effort, Leo,' I gasped, "'and we shall reach the slope where Bilali is, if he hasn't gone. Come, don't give way.' 
for he had cast himself upon his face. He rose, and, leaning on each other, we got down that fifty feet or so of cliff. Somehow, I have not the least notion how. I only remember that we found ourselves lying in a heap at the bottom, and then once more began to drag ourselves along on our hands and knees, towards the groove where she had told Bilali to wait her arrival, for we could not walk another foot. We had not gone fifty yards in this fashion, when suddenly one of the mutes emerged from the trees on our left, through which I presume he had been taking a morning stroll, and came running up to see what sort of strange animals we were. He stared and stared, and then held up his hand in horror, and nearly fell to the ground. Next he started off as hard as he could, for the grew some two hundred yards away. No wonder that he was horrified at our appearance, for we must have been a shocking sight. To begin, Leo, with his golden curls turned as snowy white, his clothes nearly rent from his body, his worn face and his hands a mass of bruises, cuts, and blood-encrusted filth, was a sufficiently alarming spectacle, as he painfully dragged himself along the ground, and I have no doubt that I was little better to look on. I know that two days afterwards, when I inspected my face in some water, I scarcely recognized myself. I have never been famous for beauty, but there was something beside ugliness stamped upon my features that I have never got rid of until this day, something resembling that wild look with which a startled person wakes from deep sleep more than anything else that I can think of. And really, it is not to be wondered at. What I do wonder at is that we escaped at all with our reason. Presently, to my intense relief, I saw old Bilali hurrying towards us, and even then I could scarcely help smiling at the expression of consternation on his dignified countenance. "'Oh, my baboon, my baboon!' he cried. "'My dear son, is it indeed thee and the lion? Why, his mane that was ripe as corn is white like the snow!' Whence come ye? And where is the pig, and where too? She, who must be obeyed. Dead, both dead, I answered. But ask no questions, help us, and give us food and water, or we too shall die before thine eyes. Seest thou not that our tongues are black for want of water? How then can we talk? Dead, he gasped. Impossible. She, who never dies, dead. How can it be? And then, perceiving, I think, that his face was being watched by the mutes who had come running up, he checked himself, and motioned to them to carry us to the camp, which they did. Fortunately, when we arrived, some broth was boiling on the fire, and with this Bilali fed us, for we were too weak to feed ourselves, thereby, I firmly believe, saving us from death by exhaustion. Then he bade the mutes wash the blood and grime from us with wet clothes, and after that we were laid down upon piles of aromatic grass, and instantly fell into the dead sleep of absolute exhaustion of mind and body. End of the chapter 27 We Leap